Hello, my friends. This is Tracy Sue, and you are listening to What Would Tracy Sue Do? Where we ask better questions about things that matter. A lot matters right now. <laughs> a lot matters right now. And also, a lot of things that we thought would matter don't. A lot of things that we thought mattered don't. I actually think this is um, a good time to figure out what does matter to you and what does not matter to you. So I want to talk about money today. Actually, no, I want to talk about credit and what kind of financial trauma you are currently facing. Now, I have had more financial trauma caused by external events out of my control than your average person, right? So we have this narrative in our culture that we live in a meritocracy and that if you work hard, you will get ahead and be able to support your family in a, you know, nice middle class, all your needs are met kind of way. And you just have to make good choices. Please tell me <laughs> that facing the coronavirus, this bullshit idea dies. And I don't mean that the concept of a meritocracy dies. I mean, the lie that we live in a meritocracy dies. Because it's completely untrue. Our systems are not set up for citizens. Our systems are set up for corporations. And a corporation in today's modern world is larger than many, many countries on the planet today, which means they carry that much power. And average citizens, because we hold this untruth that we live in a meritocracy and that all you have to do is make the right choices and you will get ahead, if we continue to hold that, People fall down into poverty far more often than if we look at reality and say, hey, we need social systems that support humans, that support citizens, instead of putting all of our focus on these mega corporations. Now, the idea was that mega corporations would continue to employ people and therefore stimulate, right? Stimulate the economy. And it turns out to be completely false because we don't require them to employ people. And what we've learned after uh, 9-11 and the housing crash in 2008 is that once they realize that desperate people will work for pennies, they don't rehire. Many, 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 many jobs that existed prior to 9-11 no longer exist and they're never coming back. Many, many, many jobs that 
died after the 2008 housing crash are never coming back. So what we're calling quote unquote jobs aren't actually jobs. They're people who are owning their own micro businesses who don't understand how business works and who are not even making minimum wage. We call this the 1099 contractor. So with a 1099 contractor, all labor law is defunct. It doesn't matter. It's not real. It doesn't exist. The quote unquote employee is on their own to provide um, all, well, all health insurance, all expenses for running a business, all uh, car insurance, all biz, like everything, taxes, social security, all of this is paid individually by the employee and the company is completely off the hook for paying a fair wage. So we have this system in which all of these jobs that once existed that our, that our uh, country and our social systems are set up for have been eliminated, but our social systems have not caught up to the way we are exchanging services and goods and who's an employee and who's a contractor and what does that mean? We haven't caught up to our current reality. Basically, we're using agrarian and industrial systems that don't match our information age system. So here's what's going to happen. The jobs of the people who worked in an office from nine to five are gone. They're not coming back because what the truth is, is that they don't need a company does not have to pay uh, office rental space. They don't have to pay internet costs. They don't have to pay utilities. They don't have to pay for the benefits of employees. They can pay the people who formerly worked for them a 1099 and they will claim that they are struggling and therefore cannot rehire. Well, we've seen this before, friends. We have seen this before. We just handed trillion dollars to these companies that are not going to rehire because they're not required to rehire. And what they're going to realize is that it's cheaper to not have employees than it is to consider all people who work for them contractors. And there's no stability. So there are people, many, many people who have moved in to this new system that does not support them fraught with incredible risk and no stability without help from society. And they've been told that they're doing it wrong. And that's why they're in that position. I've been told that I'm doing it wrong. And that's when I, why I've been in the financial positions that I have been in. Well, here's how I got in financial dire straits. 9-11, I was a travel writer who worked for a magazine in New York City. After my maternity leave, obviously, the airlines had shut down, the hotels had shut down, they had gone bankrupt even when they got stimulus money. 
And so they didn't advertise. And so that company doesn't exist anymore. That magazine doesn't doesn't even exist, right? So first went the real jobs, then went the freelance job. And then it just doesn't exist anymore. I have found myself in positions of great dire financial realities, which had a cause, a correlation to disasters out of my control. After the 2008 uh, crash, economic crash, uh, we lived in this little town in Texas, and my husband worked for a chicken company. That company went bankrupt with the crash. We were lucky, real lucky, that he was offered a job to go work for the company that purchased that little chicken company. And that company moved us to Fort Collins, Colorado, where we currently live. It's the best thing that ever happened to us. And because there was only one employer in this town, we eventually foreclosed on that house. Because we could sell the house to people, but the banks wouldn't loan money. They wouldn't give a mortgage to people in this town because the town had lost its employer. Essentially, it, like many towns all over America, was dying. I don't know if you've ever driven down 287, but 287 runs through America. It runs through all of the little farm towns and all of the little, um, like little towns that once thrived, that once held a community economically. But as we moved into industrial farming and needed fewer people to work those farms, their towns died. So you drive through these, um, you drive down the highway and you hit these towns and the movie theaters boarded up and Main Street is um, like a ghost town and there's poverty. You can just feel the poverty. Uh, the young people have left and the old people are dying. This is true for all kinds of mining towns, towns that operated um, through industrial uh, automation while they were operating through making things, manufacturing things, uh, industry, right? And these people in the town were supported by a factory or a couple of factories in the same um, industry, right? And the towns are dying or dead. The people who are left, again, the young people left because there was no opportunity. And the people who still live there were sort of trapped there because they didn't have enough money to move and they couldn't sell their houses. And so they just die off, right? And so all of the stores in the town and the movie theaters in the town and the doctor's offices in the town, they no longer exist. So you have these ghost towns that are dead or dying. This is because of not immigrants, <laughs> definitely not immigrants. This is because of automation and outsourcing. 
So companies realized that they could go work in a second or third world country and not have the kind of labor costs they would be expected to have in the United States. Well, that means the American worker doesn't have a job and are not skilled or trained or have enough money to move to a different town, right? So these end up being Trump voters because America's angry at the government, quote unquote. They're angry at the wrong thing. They should be angry at corporations that do not feel obligated to employ American citizens who are going for the place that doesn't have any safety measures, that doesn't pay people a living wage. They're leaving the country. The corporations are leaving the country. They are not American corporations anymore, even though we refer to them that way and they don't pay taxes. There is plenty of money in the world so that an American citizen does not have to pay taxes until they get to six figures. But the money is in the hands of the corporation who left. They're gone. And the government, because of the way our system works, has no control over this. We do not require anything of these corporations. Nothing. We require nothing. And we're going to see more and more and more of this as we leave industry as so many things are automated. Myself, as a writer, as a designer, as a website builder, there have been extreme changes throughout my career. Marketing was the thing that I could make money on after uh, journalism stopped being a real job because the internet came on and everybody thought they were a writer. So I moved to marketing because there's money in that. And then guess what? Now I'm competing with people in India or the Philippines who also speak English. There's no language barrier. And they understand search engine optimization. And they will work for $5 to create something that I couldn't create in, you know, 20 minutes or whatever. I can't live on $5. But they can. So now I'm in competition internationally. That's going to continue, right? As we are in an information age, the way that we work is changing dramatically. And our systems, what we require from the government, what we allow corporations to do, have not caught up. And we no longer have a meritocracy. We simply do not. And what we see with coronavirus is that we have nothing to catch our citizens with. There's no safety net. We are never going back. So what we have to do is survive the best we can. And right now, I can give you some really wise advice, of course, not based on your personal circumstances, your personal finances, right? I can't give you advice based on that unless we have some kind of uh, direct communication. 
I can tell you to wash out to watch out for some sharks because you're chum in the water. I have claimed bankruptcy. I have had a car repossessed. I have had a house go into foreclosure. I have had a business crash after our last election. I've been a mother, which is a whole other issue in terms of discrimination and uh, the cost of childcare. I've been robbed and stranded in Los Angeles with my kids with no money and no ID. And here's what I know about all of these things. Bad credit is not the worst thing that can happen to you. In fact, it's not even close to the worst thing that can happen to you. In fact, it's not a big deal at all. Bad credit is the threat that makes people often make bad financial decisions. Because we have things like predatory lending, because we have student loan crises, because we have junk loans for cars, because we have really bad predatory housing mortgages, and essentially because we require nothing of the corporations who do business in our country, we have very few protections for actual citizens. It makes us all chum in the water. And there are narratives about our value and our worth and the idea that we're just making bad choices and therefore something economically bad is happening to us. When in fact, so many of these factors of these reasons we end up in terrible financial situations are completely out of our control. When the economy crashes, we lose jobs. There's nothing to catch us. So of course, of course, what follows is financial trauma. Now, I witnessed 9-11. Face to face, I saw it happen in real time. I have a photograph of the second tower hitting the second building. That's actual trauma. Anyone will tell you that's PTSD, post-traumatic stress, right? What I'm telling you now and what I know is going to resonate deep in your soul is that the financial trauma that created in my life has been more difficult to deal with than actually witnessing this horrendous violent act. Witnessing this horrendous violent act, my body has a protective mechanism called shock right? So your body, your brain, your being has sort of this energetic barrier that helps you get to safety. And that sort of cushions 
uh, what has happened to you. It sort of like cushions it in a bubble and the it kind of bounces off. Now, believe me, <laughs> I have very real PTSD about this. But that was a moment. That was an event. I have much bigger PTSD about what followed that. What followed that was financial ruin. And financial ruin created very stressful, painful realities in my marriage. The PTSD from the event created a horrible financial struggle in our family and became such a strain on our marriage that our marriage couldn't sustain itself. When I was robbed in California, I had um, my son, my daughter, and her best friend with me. It was a violent incident. It wasn't just someone stealing um, my purse at a restaurant. It was someone barging into our hotel room while we slept after I was drugged, roofied at the pool. Someone had dropped drugs in my drink. I was roofied. We went upstairs. I went to bed. Uh, well, we all went to bed. And after we had gone to sleep, someone broke into our hotel room shouting and grabbed all of our stuff. And I was so out of it that I didn't realize that we had been robbed until the next day when we woke up and the computer was gone and my purse was gone and my car keys were gone and uh, our, like our phones were gone, right? Everything that you need to survive, all the money, everything was gone. That was a traumatic event that has not caused me nearly as much post-traumatic stress as being in Los Angeles responsible for three children with no way to, with nothing. I didn't have anything. Like, not, I didn't have ID. I didn't have any cash. It was the financial trauma that stays with me, that kind of sticks with me. I'm not afraid of hotel rooms. I'm not afraid of men who might attack me. I'm not afraid of that, right? It was trauma. Again, shock kicks in. What I'm afraid of is what followed the trauma in terms of financial awfulness. Like it was just awful. It was terrible. It was awful. And what I have anxiety about is that that event triggered some financial situations that actually mirrored my previous financial trauma of 9-11. So what I'm trying to convey to you is, one, what's happening now financially for you is fucking trauma. It is trauma. It should be treated as trauma. It should be acknowledged and witnessed as trauma. You are not imagining your physical, physiological, mental, emotional terror. 
it's not something you should necessarily fight. It is trauma. There is a valid, credible trauma that is happening to you. And I'll take it a step further. There is trauma around understanding that you don't have security, that what you thought you had in your 401k plan was an illusion, that what you thought you had with your full-time job for a company with whatever benefits was always at risk. So we are collectively experiencing trauma in so many ways. There's the health trauma. There's the loss of loved ones trauma. There's the fear of this invisible um, opponent, maybe, that we cannot control. But also, I want to acknowledge that the financial strain and the loss of security is very much trauma. Very much trauma. It's a trauma that is bringing to light that we don't have a stable economy, that our social systems do not work, that privatized healthcare or private medical corporations and big pharma do not work for actual citizens. That our laws and our regulation favors giant corporations over citizens. In our constitution, we do not have the words, uh, the people will serve the corporations. Governed by the people for the people. And we've lost sight of that with what we're allowing these mega international corporations to do, right? With this false idea that this is somehow freedom. Our Supreme Court has decided that a corporation has more weight than a citizen. And we've been talking about this for years. I mean, truly, we have been talking about this for years. But we keep buying in to the American dream. And we keep falsely thinking that this is a free market. And frankly, we're intoxicated by the stock market numbers. And ignoring the reality that 78% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. Ignoring the reality that at every single one of these terribly traumatic financial events, we've been told to go shopping. That is literally the advice after the dot-com crash in the uh, early 90s and the 9-11 in 2001, George Bush, that was his advice to support an instable economy, go shopping. We need to wake up to the fact that we are not being served 
And it's not the government's fault. We are the government. We are by the people for the people. We're angry at the wrong person, the wrong enemy, the wrong structure. We're angry at the government when, in fact, it's corporations that are causing this instability. And it's how we are, as a people, measuring value. Now, I want to acknowledge trauma. This economic trauma is real. Coronavirus pandemic was the actual virus was not necessarily preventable. How we responded and the safety nets we used to catch ourselves is what we can control as a people, right? As a society, we can learn from this and as a group vote in a way that basically saves us, that acknowledges that we don't control loss of job, that if you try hard enough, that doesn't give you security, We can stop pretending that what happens to your neighbor doesn't actually affect you. We are all connected. Now, that's a big sweeping macro change, right? It's a big change that's going to involve every single person in the country. And we're going to be making some very big decisions in November if we're even allowed to vote Please tell me I'm not the only one concerned that our electoral process is being greatly hindered by this financial trauma. And I won't go into that right now. But in November, when we vote, we can decide that we are going to give each other and ourselves a safety net that ensures that we have basic fundamental needs met. And that need, one of those needs is health insurance. And the other is educating our children. We have a system where we are bankrupting an entire, well, three generations now. And we can see that that has lifelong, lifelong consequences. Generation X kids are now sending kids to college and Generation X parents still have their own student loans. That's three generations that we have bankrupted to pay for college, to pay for college debt, bankrupted before they start their adult lives. It is in our power currently, if it's not taken away right now, it is in our power to change the system, the structures by which we live, and to begin to serve the people instead of corporations. Personally, individually, for you, 
I want to offer some advice for you to consider as a way to navigate the financial trauma that is happening in your life. We are hearing things such as, oh, mortgage companies will let you skip your payments for three months uh, because we're giving them a whole bunch of money um, to bail them out. They're then going to bail you out and you're going to get mortgage relief. Be very, very cautious. Be cynical. Be cautious and be cynical because we're not actually requiring banks and mortgage companies and lenders to do anything. This is just a free check we're throwing their way in the hope, because we don't believe regulation is somehow American, in the hope that they then pass that on to citizens and homeowners. Now, some banks, probably more likely credit unions, they are going to treat their customers fairly. They're going to offer deferments. Or they're going to overlook skipped payments for a certain time period. Not every bank is going to do that. Not every mortgage company is going to do that. Let's remember the housing crisis and remember that it was mortgage companies who were creating that system in ways that were fundamentally unethical. Let's keep in mind that the housing boom right before that crisis was created because they were lending money to people who couldn't afford their homes because they were no longer interested in the profit they would receive if a person paid their bills. What they became interested in are the penalties and the interest of people who were in financial trouble of people who couldn't afford to pay. That is a massive change in how capitalism worked, how it currently works. Consumer goods, cars, right? Credit. They don't care about the profit they would make if you pay your bills. They care about the profit they will make in penalty, higher interest rates, um, late payments, uh, interest on the late payment fee, higher payment fees. Like right now, if I pay my bill on time for my HOA, they charge me extra money if I use a credit card instead of a bank account. They charge me a significant amount of money if I pay by the month instead of by the quarter. They charge me, uh, the way they're charging their customers who hire them to receive payment is pawn shop rates. 
Like, they're mob, mafia, pay off your overnight lender rates. We have a recession and we have inflation of about 30%, right? Since Trump was elected, I have watched my bills increase dramatically. I have watched the food in the grocery store become more and more expensive while the package, while what's in the package becomes less and less. I have felt the pinch on my water bill, my sewer bill, my electric bill, my HOA fees. My, I, we have felt this, right? We have felt this because wages have not kept up the pace. Your financial institution is not interested in you paying your bills. Your credit card company is not interested in you paying your bills on time. Because people were able to pay off their mortgage payments sooner if they divided that into two checks, all they did was just change the rule. You're not allowed to pay, make partial payments. Like it, they just changed the rule and said, nope, that's not allowed because they don't make money if you pay it off. We are not requiring these companies to act fairly with these bailouts. We are chum in the water. Here's an example. My own mortgage, I had heard, oh, there's, you know, they're going to start forgiving mortgages uh, and letting people skip payments. So I called to find out if this was true, if this is something I can take advantage of. I didn't get to speak to a person. I got a message, a recorded message that essentially said this. You don't qualify for a deferment, but we can give you a forbearance for three months, which could permanently change the terms of your loan, permanently change the terms of your loan, leave your information, we'll send you an email letting you know what those terms are. Friends, this is not good. I would be a fool to take that deal. They, one, have not disclosed how they will permanently change my loan. Two, they are taking a recording of me saying I'm having financial trouble or one click without disclosing the terms of that loan. There are many, many, many terrible things they could use to permanently change the terms of my loan. For instance, they could require mortgage insurance, which will run three to $500 minimum, that I don't currently have on my loan now. So that's going to increase my payment three to $500 every month. 
because now they can say, oh, well, I'm not someone they trust to pay my bills because I'm already in financial trouble. Now I'm just going to charge uh, them three to $500 every month and that I'm going to make way more money that way. They could change the terms of my loan to have a higher interest rate because now I'm a higher risk borrower. So a quarter of an interest rate increase will change your loan by thousands of dollars up to even a hundred thousand dollars. It depends on what you owe on your loan and what your current interest rate is. But one percentage interest rate is a lot of fucking money. It is a lot of money, especially over the lifetime of my loan. They could change whether they start my loan payoff at, let's say I've owned my home for 10 years. Now I only have 20 years left to pay, but because I have this one-click auto-recording forbearance, they could start that over at year one. That's going to cost me a lot more money because now I'm paying off a whole new loan for the next 30 years. Do not do these things. Do not take the forbearance. If you have a bank willing to give you a deferment, understand every single bit of that loan. You need to talk to a mortgage broker. Do not make a one-click agreement because you are panicked about getting a late fee. Don't do it. It will be a massive mistake that could cost you tens of thousands of dollars. It could cost you a hundred thousand dollars. And they, people are going to lose their houses because they take these terms that they don't understand that they haven't even seen before there's implied consent. This will be a way that banks will foreclose on people. It is not mortgage relief. It's not even close to mortgage relief. Another term that they talked about was you can have a big lump sum at the end. And if you don't pay that in full, again, they can take, they can take your house. So if I'm deferring $1,500 a month on my loan, I would then owe in back pay three months down the line, plus another $1,500. So now we're at $6,000 in three months. The economy right now is such that that's an unlikely scenario. If I don't have a job now, to expect that I'm going to have $6,000 in three months is an unreasonable expectation and they will take your house. So what should you do? If you have lost your home, I'm sorry, let me back up. If you have a mortgage that because of your job 
change, whether that's being laid off or uh, you've been sick and you can't go back to work because you have the virus or someone in your family who supports you, there are things that are out of your control now. If you do not understand the terms of your loan, do not agree to anything. And from what I'm gathering, leaving your phone number and a request for a forbearance is an agreement. Filling out a form online that says, uh, terms apply, click here if you agree to the terms, which we've all clicked so many times without reading it. And even if you go read it, you probably won't understand the sneaky little bitch ass way. They're going to screw you, which is why do not click that button. Don't click the button. Do not click the button. Find a mortgage broker. Get really good advice. You know who's going to lie to you about that? The people who are saying they're going to help you. So don't take the advice of the company. Do not agree to anything without outside advice. To take a hit on your credit and to be charged a late fee, that is way less disastrous than getting yourself in trouble, right? This mortgage relief is going to cost people their homes. A lot of people, thousands of people, tens of thousands of people are going to lose their homes by taking the relief. Do not do it. Don't do it. Just don't do it. If you can't pay your mortgage right now, just take the hit on your credit and pay the late fee until you have better advice and you understand what the consequences are. And most importantly, when you're not panicked, no one is going to come and take your home right now. No one is going to come and take your home right now. They're not going to do it. You've got to be a good three months behind before shit starts to happen. There's a whole legal process that has to occur before you can foreclose on your home. Before they can foreclose on your home. We are so soon into this that there's no reason for you to completely panic and make bad decisions. You need to calm down. You need to just say, okay, well, you know what? I've got a 10-day grace period until I have to pay it. And then I have an opportunity to just pay a late fee. I don't want to change the terms of my loan. If you have a good, stable, healthy loan right now, you do not want the terms of a new loan. Now, this doesn't apply to someone who is refinancing their house when they understand the consequences of that. I'm talking about emergency loan, quote unquote, relief. Let's talk about the difference between a forbearance and a deferment. And this will apply to student loans, mortgage loans, credit cards, other kinds of debt. Okay. Let's use student loans specifically because we are already in a massive student loan crisis. Again, we have contracted with corporations who are benefiting from you not paying your bills. They don't make money 
from people who pay their bills. They make money from people who do not pay their bills. They can increase the interest rate. Again, that could be tens of thousands of dollars over the life of your loan. Late fees, overcharge fees, payoff early fees. The biggest deal with forbearance is that the interest on your home continues to accrue. So you never actually get to your balance. Here's where it got me. Predatory lending, six months after I graduated from college, I had taken um, a few smaller loans and a bigger loan, right? I had taken subsidized Stafford loans, and I took one tiny little non-subsidized loan. Over and over and over, they called me. Consolidate your loans. The payments are easier. Consolidate your loans. The payments are easier. It wasn't until a couple of years later when I couldn't understand why my loan balance was growing instead of shrinking that they told me that when I combined my tiny little unsubsidized loan with my subsidized loan, it made my entire loan unsubsidized. Therefore, I do not qualify for determinants. De- deferments in which interest does not accrue. I started with $15,000. I was at $75,000 in, I think it was 2016. It caused me so much stress that I refinanced my house in order to pay off a portion of that loan, basically roll it into my house at a lower interest rate than I was paying my loan. I wish I hadn't done it. Here's why. Hopefully, (laughs) someday, if we elect the right people, we will save ourselves from the student loan nightmare we live in. And I would have more equity on my home when I go to sell it. And it just kind of seems like a waste of money that I paid them $35,000 is what I reduced my loan by half. So now I own 35, I owe $35,000 on my home that I would not own otherwise. It looks like Generation X is going to die with these loans. Like, there's no way out. My mortgage broker friend says um, that the number one reason people don't qualify for home mortgages is because of their student loans. And it's not that they missed payments necessarily. It's that they're, um, they have too much debt. They're carrying too much debt. We've bought into the lie that a student loan is a safe loan, and it's fucking not. Generation X are still paying their loans and will probably be paying them till we die. Now our children are going to college and they're offering my kid, my 18 year old, they're offering $140,000 in loans. Do not do it. Don't do it. 
You will be bankrupt before you start your life. Your child will be bankrupt before they start their life and they will continue to be bankrupt. Our economy is always going to be in the shitter if we have three generations of people who are doing life bankrupt because of student loans. That is an, that is a structural change that benefits corporations instead of the people. We have to stop allowing this. We have to look at the return on investment of a college degree. Do you know what the turn, return of investment is on a poetry master's degree? Nothing. Even if you get a teaching gig, you will get an adjunct teaching gig that pays like $3,000 for a semester. Can you live on $6,000 a year? No, you cannot. If you are someone who wants to stop paying or needs to stop paying your student loan for a time, do not fucking listen to them about a forbearance versus a deferment. You always, always want to take the deferment. During a deferment on a subsidized loan, your interest stops accruing. You can continue to take a deferment every six months. You can apply, I think. Do not listen to the people on the phone. Their interest is in you not paying your bills. Their interest is in you paying late fees and more interest and increased interest rates because of penalties. You always want to take the deferment. If you take the income-based lower payment plan, your interest is going to continue to accrue over your lifetime. Like, here's the thing. None of your choices are good with a student loan. None of them. They all suck. But a deferment sucks less than a forbearance. A forbearance says, okay, well, you don't have to pay your payment right now, but your interest is going to continue to accrue, and the balance that you're not paying is just going to add to the end of that. Plus, they're going to apply penalties. There's very little uh, restriction to the penalties we apply to corporations that screw consumers, and we're calling that freedom. We're calling that a free market. No, no. This is something else. I call it corporatism, not capitalism, corporatism, because we're a nation that keeps giving more and more power to these mega international corporations that they're not even American corporations, but we are weighing them in our judicial system as citizens and requiring little to zero regulation to force them to act ethically. And the idea is that we can trust them to self-monitor and self-regulate. No, this is a false idea. It has been proven wrong. The numbers are in. It's not up for debate anymore. They will act as unethically as they need to to show a short-term profit next quarter. They will build garbage products. They will pollute the planet in third world countries. We share the fucking atmosphere, people. 
There is no out of sight, out of mind. We have the internet. The studies are in. The numbers are real. The experiment that deregulation improves the economy is fundamentally incorrect. We're throwing trillions of dollars at these corporations and not requiring them to hire other people, not requiring them to behave in an ethical way, not requiring them to take care of the resources they consume all over the world. We can't keep doing this because we're at a critical mass. We cannot favor corporations over citizens because they don't rehire. They don't make green products. They don't have any incentive at all to consume fewer resources because they're not making money on the price of the product. We are essentially subsidizing entire industries. Fuel, gasoline, oil, These are being subsidized by a fucking war that's lasted 18 years. And prior to that, like, we are subsidizing that industry incredibly when we could be subsidizing the industry of clean energy. The only reason we're not is because we've bought into this nutty idea and that this is a free market. It's not a free market if we're paying for war. That's not a fucking free market. We are going to bail out companies that are no longer going to employ people. They're going to switch to a contractor 1099 basis, giving employees no security, not even minimum wage. And we're going to call, we're calling that a stimulus to the economy. Oh, here's your $1,200. By the way, your tax burden will be $5,000. That's not a bargain for us. It's not a generous thing that, quote unquote, the government is giving us. That is just another bailout for a corporation. $1,200 is not enough to get me past a one-month payment in my mortgage. That is true for most of America. $1,200 is, I don't know, grocery money for one month which I will be doing more um, more podcasts about how to shrink your budget uh, and not suffer in your lifestyle. Right now, I'm trying to help you understand what in this shitty traumatic situation, what is your least shitty choice? I'm hoping to educate you on this so that you can not lose your home because you clicked a button that agreed you to terms and conditions that they haven't even disclosed that are full of traps to help you understand that corporations are not interested in you paying your bills. They make far more money if you don't pay your bills. Paying your bills on time and paying off a credit card and paying off your house 15 years early is a radical act. Like it's a, it's fucking consumer rebellion. Truly. 
bad credit is not a big deal. You can turn bad credit around pretty quickly. And after this, they're so desperate to loan people money that you can probably get a credit card a year down the road. Needing good credit is basically a fucking lie. It's a lie to make you pay your credit card instead of your electric bill. We're to the point now where the fundamental shit matters. And if you are making a choice between making your mortgage payment or your credit card payment, pay your mortgage. That's the thing you don't want to get behind on is the mortgage. If you can help it instead of signing some sort of mortgage relief, that's going to make you lose your home even faster, be late and pay the stupid late fee. Let your credit take a ding. If you are making choices between buying gas for your car or paying your internet, internet is not a luxury. It's the only way you can make a living. Your phone is not a luxury. It's the only way you can make a living. Our libraries are closed and that's where a huge portion of our population actually accessed the internet and you can't get a job without the internet. You can't even get side gigs without the internet. You can't even apply for a job without the internet. You can't get information that right now is extremely important without the internet. A lot of people only have the internet on their telephones. A phone payment and an internet payment come way before credit card payments. Way before credit card payments. If you have lost your job, you need to have food to eat, which, by the way, you should get to your social services office and immediately apply for Medicaid and food assistance and LEAP. LEAP is a national program that helps you heat your home. The second you lose your job, you qualify for Medicaid. It's the best insurance in America. And this is why our current situation is why Medicaid for all is the only financially sound solution. It is the only one, the only people who benefit from a private healthcare system are the mega corporations that are actually harming our health in a ton of different ways. And I'm going to do another podcast about that, how the companies who make the medication also caused the health problem that required medication. Like the way we're doing things and weighing corporate profit is at the cost of us as a people. It is at the cost of economic security for the nation. How in the hell, how in the hell are we buying the idea that a corporation needs more stimulus than the people? We have been manipulated by very controlled, deliberate messages sent out over all of our sound waves and internet waves, information that deliberately makes us think that giving our money 
to a corporation is a smarter idea that carries more freedom. It does not carry more freedom. It is enslaving us. Actual cash in your hand that you can pay your bills with, that you receive from a job that pays you money. A lot of us are working for free or less than free. Uber drivers, Lyft drivers, uh, Instacart shoppers, DoorDash. A huge percentage of these quote-unquote employees are losing money. They are paying for rich people to get their groceries. Do your math. Before you agree to any terms on anything, do your math. Because you literally could sign up to be an Uber driver, pay for the gas on your car, pay for the insurance on your car. Now they're even telling you, you can buy your car or lease your car from them. How many rides do you have to take just to be able to pay your expenses? What is left over from that, that's the profit. If it's less than that number, you have now paid people for the luxury of bringing them their food and groceries or giving them a ride somewhere. And currently, that's actually a high-risk gig. So just because you're getting some kind of payment does not mean that you're not losing money. Lots of people in this country lose money. We are considering quote-unquote jobs to be things that make us prosper. Companies can say, oh, I created 200 jobs. If you still qualify for welfare after your job, that's not a job. That's a place for you to go and labor for free or you pay them to labor that benefits only corporations. And do not think that that benefits you just because you have a 401k plan. No. Look how much your 401k plan is worth in terms of economic stability. It's an illusion that intoxicates us and allows the people to hand over our power to corporations with zero incentive. They have zero incentive. Zero incentive to pay fairly. They have zero incentive to not abuse our resources and deplete them to the point we're in a crisis, people. We've been in a crisis for a while. Deregulation does not work. It works for the people at the top of that corporation, but it does not work for employees. It does not work for communities. It does not work for a country's economic stability. It does not. And there's no denying that. So when you are worried about taking welfare for some kind of ethical, moral reason, that's propaganda. 
There is no ethical failing in expecting your community or these corporations to contribute to the welfare of people. Our government is supposed to serve the people. It is for the people. It is not ethically wrong for you to receive help from the people. We're a community. Communities support each other. And this idea that you somehow suck because you declare bankruptcy or because you want medical care or because you want your children to be educated and have a good life or because you want to be treated in a positive way by the corporations who literally control the government now. This is not your moral failing. Receiving your access to public services is not a unethical thing to do. Our system is unethical. Our structures are unethical. If there is a moral failing, it is how Americans are voting against their own best interests, their own self-interest in favor for, in favor of these mega corporations that have no alliance to America. Like I have learned some shocking things about certain industries and the amount of control they have over the American economy and there's zero benefit to America. If you want to be a patriot, You have to vote for the people. It is not to the benefit of the people to hand all of our money over to corporations and expect nothing in return. That is not for the people. That is for the corporation. Stop paying your credit cards if you have to. If something's not going to get paid, stop paying it. There, It could take years for them to come after you. Take the late fee. Don't re-sign something. Don't agree to terms that you either don't understand or are not disclosed. Always take the deferment over the forbearance. When they're talking about an interest rate, understand that A 0.25 increase in interest rate equals tens of thousands of dollars. When you're expected to pay a lump sum three to six months down the line, don't fucking do it. Let it accrue all on its own because now you've changed the terms of your loan and you're still going to have that big lump sum back payment. People are going to lose their homes over that. And I hate to tell you, friends, but a whole lot of people are going to lose their cars because they shouldn't have been buying them anyway. That's been a credit racket since our elections in 2016. When you drive into a parking lot and everyone has a new car and no one has got raises and the price of living has gone up. That means there's been predatory lending through cars and the majority of people can't afford those payments because they're living paycheck to paycheck and they won't be able to pay a $500 minimum payment. 
If you're someone who's going to lose your car, figure out how to get a lump sum of money in your hand before they repossess it. And if that means you don't pay your car payment for a few months, okay, if it's $500 and you don't pay your car payment and you know $300 down the line, at least you have $1,500 still in your hand that you could use to go buy a piece of shit car. I, used, I called these disposable cars, right? It's on its last leg, but it'll get you where you need to go for a minute. Keeping that car is not your top priority. Paying your mortgage and paying your uh, basic keep your house going expenses is your priority. The only exception to that, I would say, is if you're earning your money through your car, through your vehicle, and that's the way that you make money, but you better do your math to make sure that you are making money instead of losing money. Because a lot of people have become a Lyft driver or an Uber driver or a grocery store deliverer to pay for their new car. But if you're coming up $100 in the negative, you're not paying for your car. You're certainly, that's certainly not a job. That's not a job. Do your math. Do your math. Bankruptcy may be coming for you. And I got to tell you, with bankruptcy, that felt amazing. It felt like freedom. It felt like a release of bondage. After 9-11, when we reduced to one income and we had a new baby, we tried to save ourselves uh, in several different ways. Um, our car got repossessed. Okay, that puts another couple of bucks in the pocket. We moved to uh, from Brooklyn to New Jersey. Even that wasn't enough because of the cost of living. So we moved from there to uh, my ex-husband's hometown in Texas, which was a terrible idea. We could not save ourselves. And I got to tell you, man, my husband's ego, boy, that just hurt, right? So you've got this ego telling you you're a failure if you claim bankruptcy, that is simply untrue. Biblically, every seven years, debt was supposed to be erased. That is, that is the foundation of what bankruptcy is. It is the acknowledgement that sometimes shit happens that's out of your control and there's no other way out. And the reason we're in a student loan crisis is because there's no other way out. And those student loans do not qualify for bankruptcy. So you're facing something like this and you're barely hanging on. And you can't get out of your student loan. You could get out of your mortgage through a foreclosure or by selling it. And you could get out of your car payment and out of your credit cards so that you can survive. We're talking about survival here. We're not talking about fucking off a whole bunch of money because you made bad choices. We're talking about survival here. Bankruptcy is not the worst thing that can happen to you. It is often the best thing that can happen to you. And it's very liberating if you're going to learn about money and start understanding what you're agreeing to and start understanding what things are really costing you.
After we declared bankruptcy, we took、uh, Financial Peace University from Dave Ramsey. Man, I did not know really how money worked. Honestly, neither did my husband. We were in our early thirties. You know, we we went into our、um, adult lives with a presumed economic、uh, boon. We had good jobs. We were living the American dream. We had a new baby. Things were going awesome, and then boom, everything changed. Circumstances outside of our control. Trauma, financial trauma, marital trauma, witnessing violence, trauma. That's what this is. It is financial trauma, and if you've got to declare bankruptcy at the end of this, do not be afraid. It could, it could be the thing that liberates you. But also, do not be stupid. And that's what Dave Ramsey calls paying for things that you don't understand the terms that do not have an economic return. Right? It's stupid tax. He calls it stupid tax. Now. I do not care for Dave Ramsey and his politics, and I have often called him a joy killer because living the way he instructs that you live is pretty much going to kill your joy, and it actually put a lot of strain on our marriage. But also, it taught us how money works. It taught us what smart things to do with money are. It taught us what the financial traps are. It taught us what things to buy and what not to buy, and how much to pay for them, and what kind of loans are bad deals. Dave Ramsey has a podcast. Susie Orman is another way to get good quality information. Now, if bankruptcy is down the road for you, and you need to talk to a bankruptcy attorney to understand whether it's a smart thing to do or not, and if you have just lost your job, don't wait until then. Do it immediately. Talk to a bankruptcy attorney immediately and find out what your true financial position is. Because right now you're in a panic. You don't even know what your true financial position is. And if you're overextended with credit card debt and a car payment you shouldn't have gotten into, or late mortgages, or whatever your situation, you don't even understand it. You don't have a complete comprehension of what your situation is until you speak to a bankruptcy attorney. If bankruptcy is in your near future and you can put it off and still get credit, pay your bills with your credit cards. If you have a line of credit, it might be wise to use that line of credit before bankruptcy. Now that's not advice. That you're going to hear a lot of places, but as someone who has been through a lot of financial trauma, I can tell you that one way to stave off and to make it through and to survive a very shitty position is to use credit 
to keep your head slightly enough above water that you don't die. At the end of that, bankruptcy, when it comes, feels pretty great. But this is only something I would advise anyone to do if you're going to be smart. Man, I had a friend, she claimed bankruptcy, she felt free for three freaking weeks, and then she just started doing the same stupid shit and charging up another hundred grand in debt, buying the car and getting more credit cards. And, oh, they told me this is the way to, you know, improve my credit. Credit is so easy to improve after a bankruptcy. We think it's going to take a long time, but it's not. Three years after we declared bankruptcy, we bought a house with an uh, FHA, FHA loan. While all the other people around us lost their loans because they had done real dumb loans, real dumb loans, like don't buy a house unless you understand what your options are. There are resources in the world to help you understand what your options are and what things really mean. And if you're in a financially disastrous position, make it your job to find out. Make it your job. For a few years after our bankruptcy, that's what we did. We made it our job to understand money. And I tell you what, I don't do stupid shit with my money anymore. I live a frugal life. My lifestyle can be on par with a six-figure lifestyle in terms of quality of life. Easily. Easily. Because often people are dumb with their money. They pay stupid tax. And maybe you're one of those people and this is not an inevitable permanent position to be in. You could use this period of time to realign your values with the reality of money and the reality of the America we currently live in. And you could vote accordingly and also change your lifestyle accordingly. If you are screwed right now, I have so much compassion for you and empathy because I have been there. Take the help offered. Take the Medicaid. Take the food stamps. Stave off disaster as long as you can. And then declare your bankruptcy. And then learn from that. Don't do it again. Don't put yourself in that position again. If you have an understanding of money, when things like this happen, and I promise they're going to happen again, especially if we do not learn our lesson about corporatism and the way to run a country, if we do not learn our lesson and we find ourselves intoxicated with uh, cheap interest rates on loans and a, you know, skyrocketing stock market. Basically, if a Republican takes office again, we're going to implode because the way that they do this is fundamentally unstable. It is fundamentally not to the benefit of 
our community of people as citizens in the United States. It is fundamentally a system where the people, the citizens of the United States are chum in the water and they're shark circling and we're being told lies. Man, go back and listen to my podcast, Inflation 2020, that I did last year. Our situation, this right now, financially, was inevitable. In a lot of ways, it was totally inevitable. It's like we're on some kind of hamster wheel and we just keep doing the same exact thing over and over and listening to the marketing propaganda that has become the Republican Party and Fox News and believing that shit. You can't even understand why it's not true if you don't understand how money works. How to relate to money in a healthy way. How to prepare yourself for financial trauma that's probably coming again. I did not find myself in that situation and then never experience again. After 9-11, there was also a housing crash. But in between that period of time, from 9-11 to the housing crash, so a matter of seven years, between the bankruptcy and the housing crash, a matter of three years, It did not have the same devastating effect. It didn't. Because we had understood money by then. We had figured out who were the sharks and what game were they playing. We had learned to swim. We had learned to paddle back into shore. When spiritual people talk about being in alignment, getting in alignment with the universe, they make it so ethereal, right? It's, it's just this state of being. It's this, you know, meditative connection to God. It's, yeah, what it really is, is aligning with the energy of money. Money is an energy. It is the energy that we exchange on the planet and it is being unfairly exchanged. If you are not in alignment with the reality of money on this planet as an exchange of energy today, you are going to make serious mistakes. You will never get rich. You can make a lot of money and not be rich. It is what you do with your money and how you understand money and your relationship with money. You have to get in alignment with reality before you can attract anything good. Because you, if you don't understand money, you don't even know what you want to attract. I'm, I'm speaking in terms of law of attraction in the spiritual community right now. The same exact thing is true in terms of Christianity. If you don't even understand what the sin and sin being defined as uh, missing the mark, if you don't understand what the mark is that you're trying to hit, you're always going to miss the mark. Always. You could pray and pray and pray and pray and you could meditate and meditate and meditate and meditate. 
You can make all kinds of dream boards. And believe me, my dream boards have power big time. But if you're putting the wrong thing on your dream board, you're never getting where you want to go. Where you want to go is a sense of security and peace. If you're putting making a certain number on the dream board, that doesn't make you live a better lifestyle if you do the wrong thing with money. Certainly cannot provide you peace and security if you're doing the wrong thing with money. And if you have screwed up the way you do it, so what? No big deal. Learn from that. But if you're going to screw up and then keep doing the same dumb stuff, I don't know what to tell you. You're always going to be misaligned. You're always going to be sinning against the energy of money. It is your job to learn this. It is your job to face the reality that we're in instead of pretending that we're in something we're not. We're not in a meritocracy. We're not in a fair free market. We don't reward people for working hard. To pretend that we do means we will never align with money. We will always vote incorrectly or self-destructively, actually. We vote very self-destructively because we don't even understand our position, because we pretend our reality is different than our reality. And when you face the truth of our reality, and this is going to, like, it's inescapable now, you're going to face the truth because there's no other option. Like, that's what you're doing. You're facing the truth. We're all collectively, our big, huge community of the world is now forced to face the truth. And I got to tell you, we've made a lot of technological process, but our society systems, our cultural systems, and most importantly, our economic systems have not aligned with the technological processes that we've gone through. In terms of philosophy, oh my goodness, people <laughs> will have philosophical arguments about things that have no relationship to the system we actually live in today. Things have been proven incorrect. <laughs> to deny them is what I call belignorant. It's belligerent ignorance. It is knowing the facts having access to the information and then stubbornly, belligerently refusing to acknowledge it and to operate as if you don't know the facts. We know the facts. To stubbornly refuse to acknowledge them and then to operate in a way that is based on the fantasy of your philosophy is self-destructive. That is the very definition of self-destruction. And the way our system works politically, people vote self-destructively all the time based on a reality that doesn't exist, based on a philosophy that has not held up to today's reality. That is the very definition of self-destructive. And what's worse, it's the very definition of other destructive, of destruction of other people, because you haven't understood that what is bad for someone else is also bad for you. 
the value, the mantra, the phrase that I check my own beliefs against, that I make decisions based on, that is traced back to the golden rule in the Bible and karma in uh, the Hindi system, right? Every tradition can trace back to some way of looking at this phrase. And I like this phrase because it brings things back to earth to the present moment. It's not some ethereal, spiritual, la-la land. And it does not buy in to political or economic propaganda. Here is the phrase. You've heard this from me before. You'll hear it from me again. What I want for myself, I want for everyone. What I want for myself, I want for everyone. It is the same idea as do unto others. It is the same idea of karma. What comes around goes around. Let me make a distinction that I feel is very important because I see people make this mistake all the time in manifesting. Do not want what someone else has. Do not declare your right to it. This goes back to um, do not covet your neighbor's anything, right? Do not covet. It's one of the Ten Commandments. To covet is like a destructive self-fulfilling prophecy, right? And I see people do this all the time. I want uh, what my neighbor has. I want their uh, type of marriage. I want their house keeping up with the Joneses, right? Keeping up with the Kardashians. Uh, we want what somebody else has. Here is where that really screws you up. You don't know what they have. Here's an example. There was a couple on uh, my street and this couple had uh, the whole neighborhood thinking that they just had the perfect relationship and just the perfect family. And I would think, oh man, their relationship is so good. I wish I had that. I've thought that about several other people and their relationships. Man, I wish I had a boyfriend like she does. I wish I had that job. I want what she has. I want that relationship. I want that job. But then you find out the truth of that. And it turns out that couple that everyone on the street was envying their relationship hadn't had sex in years because he was a child molester of little boys. Now, that seems like an extreme picture, Right. But then the other relationship I noticed that I was like, man, I think I would like something just like that. It's the only relationship I'm seeing right now that I think would be beneficial to me. No, he just walked out of her life. He just left. No long fighting, no therapy, no negotiation, just walked out, finished, done after five years. What? You know, we don't perceive the truth looking at other people. We know 
that the job isn't looking the same from the inside as it is from the outside. Now, when I see people who are living large, what I think about, because I understand money and the way that it works in this country, when I see someone driving that fancy car and buying a new McMansion and always wearing pretty clothes, is that's a lot of debt. They're house poor. That's expensive. The sociological math does not support that as a reality. I don't know what they're doing to get that money, but it's probably something I don't want to do. I don't want to experience debt. Fuck, I don't want to clean a big house. I see a big, huge mansion and I think, man, that's a lot of work. I don't want that kind of work. Because I'm judging it based on the reality of money. I'm judging it based on the reality of our divorce rate. I'm judging it based on the reality that I don't know what's going on in that marriage or in that relationship. I know what they're portraying to the public, but I don't know what's going on on the inside. Therefore, I don't want to turn it into a punishing, self-fulfilling prophecy. I don't want to envy someone else's financial situation because for all I know, that financial situation could be the most stressful thing on the planet because they're overextended. They're in way too much debt. They're fighting over money. What I want for myself, I want for everyone turns that around. It's not a coveting statement. It is not me looking at someone else's superficial in the public life and claiming that like a grabby, selfish, gross person full of envy and coveting and saying, well, I want that. I want that. I've had people do that to me. It is not fun. It's horrible experience to have someone try to steal your life. It means that they believe that only one of us can have it. Only one of us can have that life or that job or that house or that car. No, what I want for myself, I want for everyone, brings it back to me. What do I want? I want safety. I want security. I want my kids to be educated without being bankrupt when they start their lives. I want medical care that I can have. I want to be able to go to the doctor when I'm sick. I want to be able to treat myself with self-care. I want to clean, I want to eat clean food without having to pay so much money that I can't afford food. I can't afford to feed my kids. I want transportation, but I don't want a car payment. I want that for everyone. Now, this doesn't apply, obviously, to consumer goods or luxury items that are not necessary to live. Not everyone needs my, you know, coveted purse. This applies to the foundational hierarchy of needs. I want a sense of belonging. I want everyone to have a sense of belonging, which is why I'm against bigotry. I want a sense of fairness and justice. I want everyone to have fairness and justice, which again is why I want equality. 
I want to have enough money to live on. I want everyone to have enough money to live on. I want medical care. I want everyone to have medical care. This is not conditional on them doing what I think they should be doing. It's a very foundational, a very, just the kernel of what it is to be alive. Kindness, safety, equality. How that looks is going to look different for all kinds of people. There are, what, 7 billion people on the planet? There are 7 billion ways to live. But I think we can all circle around some basic values like kindness, fairness, safety. And the phrase that I enjoy that is the same idea, the same concept of every tradition and culture that lives successfully on the planet, I what I want for myself, I want for everyone. Okay, what do I want for myself? If we can vote in that way, if we can live in that way, if we can relate to each other and build communities in that way, we might be able to just turn this thing around. If we don't, this black hole gets blacker. I mean, that's just true. If we do not figure out that what we're doing right now is not the way that it's going to work, it doesn't work. Then this situation that we're in is just the beginning of a lot of really terrible situations that are coming down the pipe. I want you to save yourself. But I want you to save everyone also. Do your math. Figure out how you can have a quality of life. If that means you have to pare your life down, there's a whole movement called minimalism. A whole movement. Where you just get rid of all the extra burdens in your life. Right now is a great time to do a massive purge, a big spring cleaning, a big clearing out. It's a clearing out of beliefs. It's a clearing out of systems that don't work. It's a clearing out of all of the extra obligations that fill up your time that are not important to you. It's a, this is a fantastic reflection time for the entire world all at the same time. We have never had this experience where we're all experiencing our connectedness. We're all experiencing the same trauma. We're all experiencing the same stress and anxiety. I pray that we make use of this and come out on the other end with systems that work for the people instead of corporations. With systems that support us with more equity and fairness. With more health, with more love, with more connection, with more belonging. That is absolutely 100% achievable. 
but not the way we're doing it now. None of that is achievable the way we're doing it now. None of that is achievable the way our economics, our politics, our society is working. All right, I am going to take my car for an oil change to support my local mechanic and to keep my already paid for no car payment uh, 2005 15-year-old 260,000 miles on it van and keep that sucker moving. Because that's my lifeline and that's all I need is a reliable piece of transportation. All right. I love you. And I will talk to you soon.